Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 16th, 2016, so it's 31616. I like numeric patterns as we've mentioned before, so I just thought I'd point that out. I'm kind of jazzed today because I have a special guest on today that I am grateful to even get to talk to. Uh, Larry Korn, and for those who don't know who Larry is, Larry is the guy that did the English translation of One Straw Revolution by Masanobu Fukuoka. Uh, he also spent initially two years living on uh, uh, Mr. Fukuoka's farm in Japan, and he's a lifelong student of his work. And he's been all around the world teaching both permaculture and natural farming, which there are some differences uh, to that we'll talk about today. What you're about to hear once we get done with the housekeeping today is a very deep conversation, both a technical conversation and a very spiritual conversation as well, uh, with an amazing person. We'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects. Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food, you need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers, they've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets, got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to, they've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them SawTac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, Sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1745. I have Oliver Ellsworth, the forgotten founding father. I have the first capacitor in the electric car, and I have a lot of important births. Those are just bullet points, so I'll read those real quick for you. Benjamin Rush, U.S. physician and advocate for asylums for the mentally ill, is born in this year. 
Uh, Vlatten Howie will establish the first school for the blind in this year. And John Jay, author of the five of the Federalist Papers, uh, who also become the first Chief Justice of the United States. John Jay is born in 1745. Let's read Oliver Ellsworth, the forgotten founding father. One might think that the third Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court would not be worth remembering, but in fact, he's critically important to the design of the U.S. government. Oliver Ellsworth is born this year in Windsor, Connecticut. He will attend Yale, be admitted to the bar. His accomplishments will be several. He will become one of the representatives of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. More importantly, he will be one of the prime designers of the federal government, splitting Congress into a House representing the population and a Senate representing the states. He will also design the federal court system. President George Washington will nominate him as Chief Justice in a job he will later leave uh, to help out John Adams in France. John Adams will ask for his help in peace and trade negotiations with France. France and the USA will not always get along. Ellsworth will resign his position on the Supreme Court and negotiate with Napoleon. They will get along famously, and he will set up the conditions that will bring about the Louisiana Purchase. My take by Alex Shrugged, who does these for us at TSP Wiki. John F. Kennedy wrote the article on Olive Ellsworth for the Encyclopedia Britannica, so he must have thought the man was important to history. That is why I took a second look at him. He was a Federalist, which meant he believed in a strong central government, but such government depends on thoughtful, selflessness leadership that is trusted by the vast majority of citizens to protect them. Once Thomas Jefferson stated his Democratic-Republican Party, uh, once Thomas Jefferson started his Democratic-Republican Party, Ellsworth realized the U.S. government is envisioned by the Federalist would ultimately fail, which it did after the War of 1812. After Ellsworth completed his negotiations with Napoleon, he submitted his resignation and retired quietly to his farm in Connecticut. He was confident that God would set things right in his own time, if not Ellsworth's time. I am every bit as confident, but it hasn't happened yet. I would actually point out that what the structure was based on that enabled a strong federal government under Ellsworth's construction was that the House represented the people and the Senate represented the states. And that we talk a lot about 1913 with the implementation of the Federal Reserve and the income tax, but we also kind of forget that was the same time that we made the, the, the change through amending the Constitution that senators were to be directly represented or elected by the people. Whereas up until that time, the state legislature appointed senators, and that actually gave people a greater voice and states' rights a greater, uh, a greater pull. Uh, before that was changed, because the state legislature could at any time recall a senator. They were appointed to a term of six years, but since the state appointed them, the state could recall them and make changes if they were not doing the will of the individual state. Something to think about. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, do consider helping support the show by joining the survivalpodcast.com uh, member support brigade. You can learn by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members to learn more. That's all I'll say about that today because I want to get our special guest on the air. And with that, I want to say, hey, Larry, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. I am so pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I, I'm really just ecstatic to have you on air. It was great to be able to connect with you by email and then make this happen. Um, 
and you are best known as a student uh, and and author uh, transcribing the work of Masanobu Fukuoka. Most people on the air know who that is, but I want to start out with what I do with every guest and take you even back before you started doing that. So you went to Japan in like 1970. So can you take us back to like a few years before that to what led you to decide I'm going to travel halfway around the world and go work with this amazing person in Japan? Sure. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, city boy originally, and for some reason I've just always been interested in Asia and Asian culture. So I, I went up to when I went to college at Berkeley, I studied the history of Asia. And after I graduated, well, I graduated, I got my degree, and I got deferred from the draft within one month. And I was, I could do anything. It was such a relief. I just decided to go to Asia for adventure and see what it was like over there. And so I was 23. People who were involved in the Back to the Land movement, which was uh, at the coincided with our Back to the Land movement, is well, it was all over the place in North Carolina, the Southwest, and the Pacific Northwest. Big movement in the United States, relatively small but tight-knit group in Japan. And I met those people, and they told me where all their places were, and I just hitchhiked from one commune to the other. Huh. Yeah, and during that time, I just fell in love with plants and soil, and these were in remote but very beautiful places, and they almost all involved... Um, agriculture in some way and I just loved it and that was a revelation to me and everything I've done since then is, has uh, revolved around plants and soil so while I was doing that I heard about this fellow Masanobu Fukuoka who had this uh, spiritual way of farming that produced high yields is essentially what I heard but nobody I talked to had ever been to his farm before so since I was just basically adventuring from one thing to the other. I went up there, and when I saw what he was doing and his example, I just pretty much dropped everything. He was inviting students to live and work on his farm, and he would instruct them, and uh, it sounded great to me. And so I moved up there, moved up to one of the mud-walled huts in the orchard and lived there for two years. Can, can you kind of tell people that maybe are new to to Mr. Fukuoka who he was, like, and, and how did he develop his unique method of natural farming? Well, he was – he grew up in a farming village in the island of Shikoku, and he had – because his father – his his father was the head man in the village, and he had more opportunity than others. He actually got a college education and be, became a plant pathologist. So his first job was in Yokohama inspecting plants that were coming in and leaving Japan. And while he was there, he had a flash of insight one morning in which, as he put it, he saw nature revealed and it was just perfect and ideal and so and what he saw that what people were doing to try to improve on nature thinking that it would be of benefit to humanity um was it it couldn't help but create side effects and then people would 
deal with the side effects, have to deal with the side effects, and that created even greater side effects spiraling out until pretty much all we're doing today is taking care of the um, the problems that we've created with uh, with all of our activity. So people didn't really um, get it, and so what he decided to do was go back to his farm and create a physical example of what he was talking about. So his uh, his his method. He didn't know he didn't know where this was going to end up. Nobody else had ever tried this kind of thing before. He had no human guide, and so his overall way of thinking was uh, to examine the agricultural basic agricultural practices like plowing, flooding the rice field, pruning, using chemicals, even making compost. He said, rethinking this, why are we actually doing these things? And eventually he decided that, that uh, none of them were necessary. So he, he whittled away unnecessary agricultural practices until, as he put it, he was left with just scattering seeds and spreading straw, which is a bit of an oversimplification, but it was a very easy method in which uh, nature was allowed to express itself freely. When I first read One Straw, what I came away with is he called it do-nothing farming, but it was actually a considerable amount of work. It's just the work became more of a guidance than a domination. Is that pretty accurate? Uh, yeah. If you have, He had a 14-acre citrus orchard and about an acre and a half of rice fields. So no matter how you look at it, you're going to be working pretty hard. But what he was talking about was unnecessary work. And so by whittling away the hoppling effect of unnecessary agricultural practices, nature was allowed to express itself freely again. And he eventually found that the less he did, the more abundantly nature provided. And his work became easier and easier. So, for example... When he first came to the orchard, it was the topsoil had been eroded. There was very low diversity. The plants were kind of, the trees were kind of sickly. And he needed to, uh, in, in that condition, nature cannot provide, it can't express itself and nature can't provide all of the uh, services that we have to provide ourselves if we take the management. So, for example, when he first started, he had problems with uh, cabbage moth and some other insects. So he grew chrysanthemum flowers that he made into pyrethrum and sprayed them on the, uh, you know, to protect the plants. But as he increased the diversity in the habitat uh, in the orchard, then nature, then nature took over by by establishing uh, natural balance natural control of insects. As he improved the soil, uh, he didn't have to fertilize anymore because the continuous ground cover was doing the fertilization. If he grew trees that were unpruned from the beginning and left them that way, then he didn't have to do the job of pruning um, and so forth. So the do-nothing aspect is that he didn't have – he nature just does these things naturally – 
Um, and if we interfere, then we take on that job. So, like, what I what I this makes me think of is why I think a lot of people read about this stuff, whether it's permaculture, whether it's 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 one straw, no matter what it is, and then they try to emulate it, but they try to emulate it somewhere, you know, approaching climax of the system, but they're starting out in the degraded point of the system, and they don't understand maybe like. Yes, this is the goal, but if the system's been damaged, we have to do certain things to get the system functioning again. And then, kind of, almost like a drug addict, you 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 use a, a maybe a drug that's not as uh, aggressive, but you wean them off of it, so to speak. Like when I moved to my property, you know, I, I had read one straw and all the wonderful things that clover did, and I put clover seed everywhere, and it went, yeah, that's nice. We don't grow here right now. You know, it just wouldn't. And it took about mm -hmm. two years of managing the property mostly with ducks and using swales to spread fertility and things like that. And then I go out one fall and there's just multiple types of clover, chicory, plantain, all these different herbs that wouldn't grow in, in the what you laughingly would call a pasture beginningly showed up. But mm -hmm. it took an intentional design attempt or an intentional design implementation to get nature back to where it could do the job. And I think nature will eventually, but without our help, it takes a lot longer. Uh, that's Yeah, you've ex you expressed that beautifully. Natural farming relies on nature's unique ability to regenerate itself and provide uh, all of the things that we need to live. But if we have um, affected nature and affected nature's ability to do that, then natural farming will not work as well. If we've groomed the land to um, to produce under the conditions of our modern agriculture, then you really need to put the conditions back so that na nature can express itself freely again. You know, when, when Mr. Fukuoka went back to his farm, I mentioned that the soil was run down and, and there was no diversity and so all of the systems were damaged and it did take him a while to, um, to get, to help nature come back. The first thing he, the first thing he did was he thought, well, if, if people's activity, um, is harmful, then he just stopped doing anything. And he did that for about two years. He was, he had emptied his mind, as he said, and he just observed nature and what was going on. He took long walks in the forest. And in the meantime, the orchard trees, which had already been pruned, the branches grew across each other in the air and, and, um, sunlight couldn't penetrate. And so those trees died. And then he realized that, gosh, if nature has been damaged by our activity, we have a responsibility to bring it back. So then the first things he did was, uh, he thought, uh, soil improvement. And I can describe that if you like, how he, how he got the, improved the soil and also brought diversity back in and, uh, structured the orchard so that it gradually resembled a mixed woodland. And then he scattered seeds of all kinds in seed balls and just sent them out all over uh to all over his orchard which he referred to as giving nature the tools to to do it to do what it needs yeah so he, 
That makes sense. I mean, we just rehabbed another one of our fields and used a bunch of, I mean, just plain old ryegrass because it was barren. And my buddy Nick Ferguson said, it's great to have nature do the repair work. You've got to give nature something to work with. Absolutely. Yep, that's it. And so a lot of times people say, well, I tried natural, just like you said, well, I tried natural farming and scattering seed balls. They start with a an area, a field that has been used for, you know, um, conventional agriculture for many years and then they say well natural farming didn't work i tried it for two years and it's always going to come up short until nature has been rehabilitated and these days that's pretty much almost everywhere where we start it's the same with permaculture permaculture is actually the techniques are are super for um, land restoration and it's it's necessary at the beginning but once the system is set up, oh, your life becomes so much easier. Yeah, yeah. It's so much work. It's like this huge front-end work, but it's like investing, right? Like you have to work really, really hard putting up money to in investments in the beginning, and then compound interest takes over. And I think that that's a lot like all of these regenerative techniques are, except they work way better and really way faster than the, the monetary system because they're not artificial systems. They're natural systems. Well, it took him about um, seven or eight years until the soil really was became fertile again and the diversity was reestablished. By the time I got there, he had already been doing this for about 25 years, right. and he had it all. He had the system worked out, and he was getting yields uh, in his uh, rice and barley fields that were equal or surpassing the neighbor's. Use it with barely working. You know, it hardly took any work at all to do the rice fields. Of course, he harvested and did did everything by hand without machinery. Uh, but but his with his system, he was getting these high yields. The soil was Im- improving uh, with each uh, succeeding crop. He had uh, insects all over the place and created no pollution. So where's the benefit? So his point was, so where's the benefit of all of this science and technology? If I can get yields in the way that I do and get a a net gain in the soil and also not create pollution. So that was after about 25 years. You know, there's another real nice um, benefit of doing natural, practicing natural farming. And that is that when you walked in the orchard, uh, because he, the design of the orchard was done by nature. He wanted to give nature a free hand. He didn't, he, he just scattered the seeds more or less and then let nature do the design. So when you walk through his orchard, what you were seeing is nature, nature's expression, clear and pure. And when you go through the fields of modern agriculture, all you see is the um, the you see yourself you see the intellect actually you see yourself in both because what's going on inside is uh, what you see outside is a reflection of going on what's going on inside so by practicing this form of natural farming and letting nature you know gradually become the wonderful manifestation of itself then the mind of the farmer is getting becoming more and more, say, natural, 
and it's, it's wonderful. You walk out, out, you walk through the fields, and it's every, there's unexpected surprises every day, every time you go out there. It's a wonderful feeling, and it's it's not quite so wonderful. It's predictable when you go through the fields that have been uh, created by human thought. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with that. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the technicals of some of the stuff he did and you learned from him. But before we do that, you know, you mentioned something that I think a lot of folks in the audience, especially given that we have kind of a prepper component to the audience, might be really interested in. What was it like living on the farm? Because you mentioned you lived in like a mud hut with other students. And I've read the book, so I have some idea of what it was like. But, you know, mm-hmm. it was a pretty Spartan existence, I guess. But yet it was a very fulfilling one. Uh, it was, and just as a little background, some of the communes that I lived on were so much more primitive than Fukuoka's place. They were way out, and and the conditions it wasn't. But still, to most people, it would seem like let's call it a rustic existing existence. There was you had to haul water from a spring and chop the firewood. There was no electricity, no running water. And the idea was the reason, one of the reasons that uh, Mr. Fukuoka had his students live that way is because to practice natural farming, you really, really have to tune in to the place where you're living. Uh, You actually become that place. And it's really hard to, to do that if you're living in a... I don't know. It's easier. It's just easier to live to live that way. So there were five or six of us most of the time, and people passed through. Uh, now and then, we we had seasonal jobs that we did. Uh, the harvest lasted for four months, and we had to cut the ground cover um, once and sometimes in some areas twice. And we just left the clippings on the ground. But going over fourteen acres took about a month. Sure. You know, and so, so we were working every day, but it was uh, not really like work. To, I mean, it, we were just so happy to go out into the fields because we loved working. We loved that kind of work in that kind of environment. He didn't pay us, mm-hmm. um, but but that has partly has to do with this um, Asian teacher disciple relationship. If we had gotten paid, it would have it would have messed up that relationship a little bit. We were just so glad to be able to live in a place like that, where everything was provided. And plus, Mr. Fukuoka was teaching us all of this stuff, and he gave that freely. He gave all of that freely, and we just gave. You know, it, it just was very nicely. I guess balanced. the payment was the education and the experience. That, that was- w- that's right. That's right. And that was fine with us. And in fact, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now. Uh, after when I was at his farm, uh, the One Straw Revolution came out in Japanese. And we decided sitting around the fire one night. Now, Mr. Fu, he was pretty much ignored in Japan or considered an eccentric. And this was like the early, mid-70s, say, just when the Back to the Land movement and the environmental movement was blossoming in the United States and other places. And we were thinking, oh, if we can only get this book published in English, then we'll get his message outside of Japan. And none of us knew anything about publishing or translating or anything. But one thing after the other, it's like the book had magic. One thing after the other fell into place. And it was published, 
uh, by Rodale Press, which was the vanguard of the organic farming movement. Uh, and uh, immediately it became popular. It was, it's been translated into about 25 languages. At least nobody knows exactly how many languages by now, and it became um, – so I forgot where I got off on that train of thought. You were just um, talking about how – Oh, uh, I do. I remember. Um, it's So what I've been doing, I've lived the life of a householder. You know, I've had various jobs and uh, worked as a landscape contractor in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area for 25 years while my daughter was growing up. But all during this time, I've been, you know, teaching permaculture classes, talking about and trying to make Mr. Fukuoka's understanding available to people outside of outside of Japan. And this is all I consider this continuous repayment for the kindness and the teaching that I received from him. Uh, So anyway, I think I got off on that on the um, the payment thing. Yeah. Because because people are about, I hear about that. Oh, of course, Mr. Fukuoka could could manage a farm like that because he had unpaid interns. Well, this is I can see how that applies here. It just didn't apply over there. And when he didn't, he only had students there for about fifteen years. When he didn't have students, he hired people from the village and he paid them competitive wages. It was just the the teaching part. The money just didn't uh, uh, didn't fit. No, it makes sense to me. It's very much similar to the Asian way of teaching martial arts. There's a mm-hmm. master student relationship, and the student, on some level, has to earn the teaching from the master. Right? It's just a, yeah. it, and it's 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 also kind of funny sometimes too that. Questions are handled differently, and sometimes Westerners take offense to those answers, but the answers are more designed to lead you somewhere rather than just give you an answer. Uh, yeah, they're help, hoping to stimulate uh, self-realization instead of teaching at. You know, it's, it's got, it comes from inside. You know, about 90% of Fukuoka's teaching is basic Asian spirituality. But he had a couple of – there were a couple of – and so that inclu- would include like flower arranging and uh, shakuhachi, bamboo flute and martial arts and all of those. Um, but all of those arts, you, there's a program and you go through the program and eventually you reach the final level in which you don't need the teaching anymore. That you 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 become – like the spirit flows through you and you just become a natural person again. And then whatever practice you use to get there is you, you leave behind. Uh, so with – but a lot of people, you know, don't never get there. They get involved in the teaching for its own sake and they're perfectly comfortable there and all that's fine. But with the two things that I think of that are different about – Fukuoka Sensei's teaching is that he had no program. There was no structure. He referred to it as a methodless method. It's just living each day in a joyous and responsible way, just being with the plants, doing the things that you need to provide, um, doing what you need to do to provide what you need to live. 
Yes, so he, there were no, there was no required reading, no certificates, no classes or any formal classes or anything. Um, and the other thing is that his practice, this practice of natural farming also rehabilitates the land and provides people with what they need. The other, many of the other formal Asian arts, you get a flower arrangement or you get, um, well, things that are maybe, not quite so practical hmm. in the in the actual world. Yeah, so. yeah, that makes sense. So, can we talk a little bit about the technical way that he did a few things? For instance, you mentioned rice and barley. Could you maybe describe the basic way that uh, rice and barley were produced in his region? At, you know, when you were there, versus what he did. Uh, sure. Uh, the the traditional method of uh, growing rice is that you sow the seeds. It, well, it's a plowed field that's flooded. And in the spring, you sow the seeds in a starter bed and then put compost or, in modern times, chemical fertilizer into the field and plow it and then transplant the rice uh, out into the main field. Now, Fukuoka-san one day got the idea for his method because he passed a field or the corner of a field where the rice plants went unharvested and they just fell to the ground and in, in the and the and the rice seeds were starting to sprout in the autumn. So he said, well, he didn't want to plow and then he started sowing seeds in the he tried to grow rice just the way it likes to grow, the way it would grow naturally. So he seeded the rice. He grew two crops in the same field. He grew rice over the summer and a winter grain, mainly barley, um, over the winter. So while the barley was still standing in the field, he sowed the rice seeds into the barley so that it was already sprouting by the time the barley was harvested. And he did flood the fields for about a week, and he grew uh, white clover as a permanent ground cover. Um, so there was always a crop in the field, and as he harvested one crop, the next crop would already be coming up. And so the new crop and the clover uh, inhibited weeds, and then he took the straw from the earlier crop and spread that out on the surfaces of mulch. So he loved mulch, and he loved a, a um, continuous ground cover, and at his farm he found that white clover was ideal for his ground cover. He mainly used white clover and vetch to improve the soil, along with a combination of soil-building plants. So that's why he didn't need to fertilize, because there were constantly a mixed group of plants growing in his rice fields and in the orchard. So, well, can we talk about compost for a minute? Sure, absolutely. Okay. He he really didn't like compost. Um he, it's fine for a kitchen garden outside the back door, you know, where you use a traditional sort of organic method of growing vegetables for the, for, for the house and a place to put kitchen scraps. So there it's fine. But out in the orchard, let's say 14 acres, uh, it's too much work. And also, it's, it goes along with the mentality of, you know, it's fast. By doing all of that work and mixing and everything, it's, it's, uh, it's unnaturally 
fast. It's, uh, and the, but of course the Japanese, traditional Japanese agriculture needed to do, put lots and lots of compost. The whole system is based on compost to fertilize the fields, but that's largely because they were plowing the fields. And plowing the fields runs down the amount of organic matter, so they have to keep adding. Um, so that's one of those treadmill things that modern agriculture had gotten into. So what he did was he had the, he had grasses and herbs and the ground cover and uh, mustard and burdock and all sorts of things (coughs) growing (coughs) and the roots are growing down and, and making, keeping the soil open so that air and water can circulate. And as the roots are dying, uh, and new roots are coming in, and the the the, the um, microorganisms are just flourishing in that environment. So, essentially, what he's doing is he is making compost, sort of, but it's right in the ground in the root zone. What I hear is return of surplus from permaculture. So, when I look at something like a rice plant, I'm not an expert on rice, but I'm going to mm-hmm. go out on a limb and say maybe of the, especially a, a large, tall rice plant instead of the the you know more modern versions that are shorter. Maybe the grain represents ten percent of the mass of the plant above ground, and then most plants actually have an equal amount of plant material in the root system to what's above ground. So now you're down to maybe 5% of the plant actually is being taken from that piece of property. So 95% either is straw dropped to the ground or roots left below is returned to the earth. So instead of an extraction of 100%, you have an extraction of 5%. You're taking the 5% that has the most benefit to humans but the majority of the material is actually remaining there, and that's all true surplus because it's all solar generated, right? It's all like mm-hmm. the, the earth would not create that rice plant unless there was a seed, right? So where did, where does all that mass come from? And a, a huge portion of it is energy conversion through photosynthesis. It actually increased the, the, the not just organic matter, but just think of this total matter in that field by growing plants and not removing them. And then, of course, you're feeding microorganisms, you're feeding worms, you're feeding everything that makes soil healthy. So it's na- it's nature's compost. Because I, I, that's one of the big things <laughs> I'm in agreement on. When I see people turning huge compost piles, I'm like, ah. You know, and I've had places where I needed it because I'm sitting on basically a rock shelf and no real topsoil. Mm-hmm. So, that, like, that we talked about, like, that, that kickstart for nature – but overall, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to me for us to be turning huge amounts of compost when there's all these decomposers that will do the work for us if we'll let them. Uh, that's right. That's that's right. And plus, when you add, so so you only take the grain and you return everything else to the field. And once the nature is really humming there with the combination of the all this life in the soil and everything that's going on there, uh, nature nature's inclination to create natural inclination to create the conditions that foster life. So it more than makes up for the 5% of that you've removed. It actually, let's say, creates 7 or 8% in compensation each year. It gradually, and that's how the, um, how, why in this system, the, the soil actually improves in fertility each year in spite of the heavy cropping. Sure. I mean, that, that, that also makes perfect oh, sense. Oh, here's a funny story. Um, 
Fukuoka-san came to the United States uh, for two visits, six weeks long. And on the first visit, we went to visit the Rodale farm. You know, they had recently published his book, and he wanted to thank them for it. And uh, so we had lunch with Robert Rodale and a couple of editors there. And, you know, Fukuoka-san, what he wanted to talk to Robert Rodale about was – you know, in all of his publications, he's going compost, 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 and he thinks it's way too much work. What do you think of that? He was a sort of a – he had a personality where he was uh, almost looking to create discussion. An instigator. Yeah, kind of. I'm not like that at all, but he was like that. Um, so he was taking – and then we went out to the research farm. Rodale Research Farm, and there were huge piles of compost, and he was saying, oh, look at all the energy it took to create those piles. Now you've got to get it out to the field. How are you going to do that? More energy. So the, anyway, the funny thing was, here we were at the Rodale Farm, which is based on Asian agriculture. Their organic system is based on Asian, which is based on compost. And what does he want to talk about? The the uh, it's unnecessary to make compost. He was a kind of iconoclast that way. <laughs> oh, he went to when he was in in Europe. He was talking to a group of uh, people that um, raised uh, livestock, and he referred to Europe as a as as, as an eroded, rundown cattle farm. <laughs> and you know, and he was just um, he just called it the way he saw it. And it was just, he was, it was just delightful to travel with him that, for that, you know, partly for that reason. He was always, also a very tolerant person. That he, he didn't judge people and he didn't have any problem, for example, with my beard and long hair when I got there. And, uh, he, he was, uh, gee, I made a comment once about when we were in Berkeley that this fellow uh, came into a coffee shop where we were and he had kind of spiky hair and he was all leather and metal and I must have made a comment something like um, well I guess it takes all kinds or something like that and boy did he get angry he, <laughs> he, he lectured me for about 15 minutes about how you don't you can't tell a person from looking at them and you don't know what's inside and uh, just from the appearance and he gave me a number of examples where that was the case and he, he didn't even talk to me for the for the rest of the <laughs> afternoon he's an interesting guy i i yeah. just yeah he was he was great on some more technical stuff, and then we'll, we'll dig deeper into some of that the philosophy and spiritualism. Um, I, I really understood completely when I read the book what he meant about the, the, the mandarins, where basically he destroyed these you know mature mandarins by doing nothing because they had been pruned into this form. And once you do that, then you take on the responsibility to keep doing that. Was he able to – because I don't really – know if it was completely clear able to get to a point where like you you just don't prune uh yeah he, well almost i i say yes with some qualifications um sometimes well if you get a tree from the nursery and this the main leader has already been snipped yeah oh you're stuck yeah you're gonna have to prune that tree for the rest of but he grew a lot of trees from seed uh not so much i mean he graft he used grafted stock Mostly for uh, his uh, commercial citrus. Otherwise, he loved to grow from seed. Um, 
th- then you can let the plant just grow completely to the natural form. But if a plant, like let's say uh, snow or a uh, an animal damages one of the branches, and that's going to set the plant off in an unnatural, uh, in a f- to a form that's that's not its natural form, and then you need to kind of prune that area in a way that helps the plant uh, get back as closely as possible to the natural form. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. I've seen that with, you know, even peach. I've grown peach trees from seed, and I've seen them get so weighed down with fruit if you don't thin them that a branch will just basically self-prune. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's okay and sometimes not. Sometimes you have to take some corrective action from that, but... You know, I'm in a situation where I have to prune most of my trees because most of my trees are, you know, from nurseries. And you're right, when they come pruned, there's there's not much you can do. But I've found with things like a lot of times if you buy apples, you can buy like um I'm trying it's not bud grafted, it's uh bench grafted. So they've got mm-hmm. one one bud on them that's gonna grow up into a straight whip. And if you if you leave that alone, or if you get a one year whip that's been the nurseryman didn't do anything to it. Mm-hmm. You can grow into a full tree and be left alone. I, and then it's, you know, the main reason I prune, I think, is because I'm in small spaces and I'm taking a big tree and holding it into a small form. But if you have the space and you can let trees go, I mean, they do that all on their own in nature. I I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, and the it's some of the best farmland in the world if you don't mess it up. And if you throw some, like a piece of fruit or something, there's a good chance there'll be a tree there next year starting to grow. And there were apple trees all over the place that were from people tossing apple cores. And those trees were extremely productive and nobody ever pruned them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, he, he, I read in an interview somebody did with him once. <laughs> They were looking at, uh, the two of them together were looking at this huge, it turned out to be an apple tree, big apple tree. And the fellow said, gee, isn't it, isn't it, um, inconvenient to let a tree grow this tall? I mean, your ladders aren't that tall. How are you going to harvest the fruit at the top? And, and he said, he said, what, you think we're just growing food for human beings here? Mm. You know, it's not, it's a bigger, I, it's the, his, he thought of himself as providing that natural orchard for all species and as an oasis where they could come and he just provided and welcomed welcomed other um, animals and plants uh, just as if they were living in one family it's interesting to start seeing that type of thinking permeate itself through the various forms of regenerative agriculture permaculture things like that for, that made me think exactly of what uh, Grant Schultz, I don't know if you've seen any of his work, but he's doing a lot with key line and silvo pasture, and he does a lot with persimmons, and he'll plant full-size persimmon trees, and what he said is that the beauty there is that tree grows really tall, and it'll hold that fruit well into winter, and it'll finally bled and drop, and then the livestock come through, and they get a high caloric yield at the time of the year when otherwise there's the least amount of forage. So if you were worried about harvesting every single persimmon, obviously that would be a problem, but it's almost like nature knows when to drop that fruit if you let it happen. Mm-hmm. And and it's not just thinking of people Yeah. if it's grown naturally. But it's really hard to, um, to experience that sort of uh, approach if 
you're way into control and into pruning and uh, uh, growing under keeping the the orchard uh, with no uh, mixed ground cover underneath and keeping it bare because it's you know how the people prune trees generally orchard trees low and wide so they can harvest them more easily and the weeds are kind of in the way so they're eliminated and this is just a way of thinking that if if you have that sort of way of thinking that this orchard is just for people then uh uh it's it's difficult to appreciate oh, i'm going to get it's difficult to appreciate the beauty of creation mm. and i don't know any less poetic way to say that um no that makes that makes perfect sense i mean the the concept would be the same in reverse if you were to think there's a forest, a natural forest over there. Let's go strip mine it, right? So, like, yeah. we're doing all this work to reestablish these natural systems, and the natural system we're trying to reestablish existed for, I believe, existed for us. I, I believe that. But I don't believe it existed just for us. So if we mm-hmm. want to create it, we can't create it in a model that's counter to the way the original system was designed. Which is, you know, this, this, you know, we take everything mentality. And I don't mean that in any kind of, and I don't mean this in any negative way either, but I don't mean it in like an eco hippie way. I mean it like in a very pragmatic, practical way. It just doesn't work. And I, I the reason I try to couch things that way once in a while, because I don't care if somebody calls me a hippie, I get called a hippie all the time, but it reaches across to people that have that mental block yet that it, it just, it does not work as well. I mean, that's something I think that they yeah. can appreciate if they'll examine it. That's beautifully put. It's simple, right to the point. It just doesn't work as well. And then you start side effects into uh, into motion that you have to deal with. Uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, as a, a model of how people can interact well with nature, along with all other species, I mean, Nate, um, um, think of the way indigenous people lived. Okay, they the, they were so grateful that what they needed was just all around them. It was growing on trees. It was walking around, flying in the sky. Everything that they needed, and they were thankful. But they did interact with nature, uh, and uh, gra- over many many generations, they learned to um, prov- to provide for themselves and make make their lives more secure. And but what what they didn't do, they never did anything that would inhibit nature's ability to keep producing stuff. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was a, their primary ethic, and the one that the, the the ethic that organized their social life was that they wouldn't do that. It was all designed around the survival of the tribe, and we have so uh, in most cases what they did uh, actually increased the diversity. And the abundance in nature for all species. So that's just an example that went on for hundreds of thousands of years about how um, people can interact and get what they need without, uh, well, without trashing the place. It's sustainable. It's sustainable. And we threw all that right out the window when we started thinking that, that humans are Um, 
better than other species, that the world was created for us alone. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's sure created for us. Yes, it provides what we need, just like all other creatures. But it's not just people. It's also providing for all of the other species, some of which we've learned somehow to consider to be a, a pain, like wolves. And so we go on, we wipe out the wolves. You know, this is, it's, we kind of separated ourselves from nature and made it into a human only idea. Um, as opposed to, again, the indigenous example in which we can have everything that we need and, and nature can be, continue to provide. It's a working with in partnership. Nature, we just with, by giving thanks and living humbly, nature embraces us but if you go the other way and you're kind of arrogant and egotistical as we have become as a species life becomes much harder nature does not embrace us and we're on our own yeah if you if you if you attack something it tends to respond to you in a negative way and i think in many ways we've attacked nature i think another thing that kind of gets into that spiritual realm and i i know this might upset some people's religion uh religious opinions here but i I don't mean to do that it's just an interesting observation uh that i've heard toby hemingway put forth and it's that if you look at horticultural people and when you talk about indigenous cultures you know embracing these things and actually cultivating plants and things. They're more horticultural people. And I would say uh, Mr. Fukuoka was more horticultural than agricultural, if that makes sense, that people that live that way, their gods, their spirits, whatever, are part of the earth. They're with them. And the more we move toward agriculture, which is really the cultivation of fields or the cultivation of, of, of earth versus the cultivation of plants, the more societies traditionally had gods that were apart from them in the sky. And that there's this separation that that creates, that this is, this is mine, and then you know, there's some salvation elsewhere, where indigenous cultures tend to believe that they're wrapped right up in with whatever spiritual things they believe in. They're right there with them. And therefore, everything has a certain sacred component to it, where if you create this separation, well, then all the sacred's over there. And then this is just for us. And I think that's a big part of how we've gone wrong. And I don't think it's, I, I don't think it should be offensive to anybody's religious beliefs because it doesn't have to be that way. But if you, if you marry that thought with the modern component of produce, 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 take, 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 it kind of leads to that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you've expressed that just beautifully and exactly. You know, I actually, in the, my book that I just finished, I actually had a whole section on that that was almost word for word what you just said, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh, wow. Put it back. No, but I, no, honestly, it was exactly. But here's, a, here's another thing is that when we, when this change happened and we, uh, separated, separated ourselves from natural law somehow we got the idea that we could exist uh, apart from natural law and when we did that the 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 indigenous people uh, had intuitive understanding they could speak with plants and animals and they could get cues from them and they just were living inside nature and once we removed ourselves from nature then we cut ourselves off from that intuitive understanding so now we're looking at nature instead of living within it, 
And so then we have to use our intellect to figure out what to do. And that eventually developed into science where we're using, where we're trying to take nature apart and see how it works so that we'll understand how, you know, how to do it. And it's so much more clunky than the intuitive understanding. And it's so, um, um, small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, so when I, it's, when you you said you didn't want to offend people about religion, I have the problem because Fukuoka-san, even though he was a scientist, uh, really did not he he really really did not use or care for science or the um, effect that it had in the world, especially when amplified by technology. Um, so he was always railing against science, and I've gradually come to feel that way too. But boy, if you say that in public, it's like you're hitting a raw nerve. You know, I really don't believe in the value of science. Oh, jeez. It's like saying that you, you don't, you don't think progress is a good idea. Or you don't like apple pie. Or something <laughs> like that, you know. Those are, but those are the nerves. The progress and the, the, the uh, science thing. But I truly believe those things. I don't think that progress has been all that helpful. To, for humanity and going off on this building great civilizations, I think was the most disastrous turn in human history. You know, kind of the way that I, I see it is, it's not the technology is it's bad, but as a species, we matured much more slowly than our technology did. Like, we, we've grown up to, like, the adolescent stage, but we're working with technology that, that grown adults would have, if that makes sense. Like, we outgrew our our capacity to understand what we were doing, and we started doing a lot of things just because we could, and and that generally doesn't lead to good things. So we have the technology of a mature species, but we're still emotionally in many ways an immature species. So it's not that these technological advancements can't be used for good, because I can give I can give two people a hammer, and one might use it to knock somebody's brains out and steal from them, and the other might build a home with it. So the technology mm-hmm. has to match the, the maturity of the person wielding it. And in many ways, our desire to have and our technology have exceeded our capacity to comprehend, you know, how much is right to take at any one time and how much can we take without doing harm? Uh, yeah. And, you know, the way I, I see it, you know, this idea that, uh, I mean, there are uh, segments of society and you saw it especially during the colonial times where the idea was just to take as much, take as much in natural resources, take as much as you can, as fast as you can. And, uh, you know, it's all done with, with this kind of power and arrogance and, uh, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And I'm thinking that this is the way a child thinks. Yeah, it is. It is. So like what it makes me think of is I remember reading, I don't remember where I read it, but, this one guy that was out cutting trees for the mines when they were mining the West, like for gold and what have you, to, for timbers. And he was journaling that he could literally see creeks stopping running as they were cutting trees down. Yeah. But yet they just kept cutting the trees down. Whereas I also remember I saw some documentary about the Amazon rainforest, and they were following this indigenous tribe, one of the few left. And the tribe sat down and decided that they needed a new canoe, so they had to cut down a tree. Like, they, mm-hmm. they have to. So they all decide together, yes, we'll cut down a tree to make this canoe. So the man that goes out to cut the tree down has a discussion with the tree, and he apologizes to the tree, and he explains 
what the tree sacrifice is going to mean for his family. And, uh, you know, like the, 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 the difference there is, it is unimaginable. Like this, this, this guy was really sorrowful that he was going to kill this, this huge tree, but he knew that like they could take this one and they knew another and that they would plant another tree in its place and all. And then we look at those people and call them primitive. And it just, it, it really, you wonder how, like, cause we talk a lot about being prepared for things that are going to go wrong and you all, let's look at why things are going wrong. And when you're that out of sync with reality, I, I don't know how you would expect that things wouldn't go wrong. Uh, yeah, uh, right. What you're describing is common to almost all indigenous uh, peoples all over the world, is that they um, um, had a conversation before they went on a hunt to hunt a deer, let's say. They had a ritual, a ceremony where they, you know, whatever, whatever each tribe's um, ritual was, but they – they were in in advance thanking the deer for giving its life so that they might live and but they never see they might harvest one deer or one tree but they took only what they needed they never took it all and they always left for things for other species so because they realized that it's to their benefit too if to keep the whole system running because it's just keeps providing the stuff they need and we don't think in those terms these days. Sadly, we don't. Yeah. Bringing it back full circle to some of the like the technicals, how would you compare what 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 is natural farming to things that I think some have actually springboarded out of it, like the permaculture movement or regenerative agriculture? Like, where are the commonalities? Where are the the, the differences? Um. Well, it, it, the 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 commonalities. Uh, um, Fukuoka and the natural farming came to the attention of permaculture um, because, uh, for one thing, Bill Mollison read The One Straw Revolution this is right when it came out. And he, in Permaculture 1, he didn't, he didn't know how to uh, – he did, doesn't even mention growing grain in Permaculture 1 because he didn't know how to grow grain without plowing. Nobody knew how to do that. But once he saw Fukuoka-san's example, he went, oh, my goodness. And then he put that in permaculture, too. Mm-hmm. And that that rice-barley rotation, no tillage with the clover ground cover and returning the straw, that has been a fixture in the permaculture design course uh, right from the beginning. And the other thing is that Fukuoka's orchard is a perfect example of what they refer to in permaculture as the uh, edible, you know, forest garden. It, it has the, all of the elements of it with the um, all the different structures of the uh, woodland forest and uh, the, the ground cover, and he grew vegetables like wild plants, and it was just so. That example, remember, permaculture just started in about 1975 it came to the united states in about 1980 when bill came to visit and um there were there were a few examples in australia but there were none in the united states and so just even though fukuoka's orchard was in japan it was a uh, used as a example right from the beginning so that's how he so they look a lot alike but there's a fundamental difference in the approach in fact the approach is nearly opposite uh, and 
just to Fukuoka's approach is completely in line with indigenous understanding and even his techniques, even though he's growing rice, you know, the, the crops are different, but the approach and the, and the way of seeing the world is more in line with the indigenous people and the permaculture is still, still, it's a product of our modern society. I don't know how other, what other way to say it. Um, uh, so, but it's, a, it's a, a lot better than typical organic farming. That's for sure. <coughs> because of the integration factor that it, it's not about, um, just growing one crop, but it's how all the different aspects of a farm, um, fit together. It's the interrelationships and also how the farming connects with all other forms of life and the politics and social justice and the banking and, uh, and, and so forth. Um, so it's kind of an ecologic, um, uh, way of seeing the world, but it, it's still, uh, main, or, um, it's still based on control, hmm. which is different from Fukuoka's was give up control, let nature have free reign, let nature tell you what to do. Now, the permaculture people, and I've taught many permaculture courses, I really like permaculture. There's a lot of aspects of it I really like. Um, but just when people ask me, what is your question, I, I just need to point out this fundamental Difference, you know, permaculture. You you go out. The first step is to it's you're going to base your design on nature. So you go out and observe nature. But you go out there with a notebook and kind of looking at seeing nat patterns and try identifying patterns and what nature is doing. And then you want to include that in your design. And you get a lot of information together about the different types of plants, what you want to grow, what you want to do there, what about the water situation. You get a soil survey, you get all of this together, a bunch of books, and you sit down at the desk and do a design. So what the design is, it's a product of the human intellect. It's the designer's interpretation of nature. So it goes through the intellect and then gets planted. And Fukuoka-san was trying to get human decision-making completely out of the picture. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. does and I'm wondering, like, is there some sort of a, a, a happy medium between the things? Because, like, one of the things I've let go of with design is I used to be big on the whole pinpoint design of planning placement. There's this particular variety of going to go here and, and what have you. And, and it, you know, I had a lot of losses because this is a hard piece of land. And I finally got to the point where, like, if a tag falls off a tree and I don't remember what exactly what it is, and somebody says, what kind of tree is that? I go, it's an apple. And they go, what kind of apple? And I go, it's an, I don't know, right? <laughs> it's an, I don't know, apple. It's an apple. It's just, it is what, and I, you know, let go of, like, trying to figure out exactly where all these different species and the different layers go and all. But, like, one of the things I really value about permaculture is the concept of things like zone-based design. So if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna spend time doing something every single day, it certainly makes a lot more sense for that to be 15 feet out my back door than on my, you know, the back side of my three acre property. So that zone based component makes a lot of sense, but kind of letting nature decide what it's going to do with what you've given it also seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, well, this is up to each person to, and it, to, uh, figure out 
or to decide how much to include. Now, Fukuoka-san thought it was an either-or thing, mm. uh, that it was either you're thinking either you're living within the natural world or, you've, or you're living apart from it. Uh, and because I happen to, just because of circumstances, I happen to be sort of the person in the United States that's carrying on the lineage, then I have to take that stand. I have to keep the message sure. pure. Um, but, uh, you know, remember we were talking before about the different um, uh, Asian arts and how eventually you go through, you use the structure for, yeah, and you gradually develop your understanding and your skills, and then finally you move on to a place where you don't need as a structure anymore. Oh, I think you people could easily use permaculture that way, and yeah, find the, and find their way to a different way of seeing. Yeah, I, I think it's a much more elegant way to put it. But that's that's what I'm trying to say. Like permaculture. So I've talked a lot about like strategy, tactics, and techniques, right? So mm-hmm. if you go to martial arts, a strategy is avoid conflict or survive it if you cannot avoid it, right? A, a, a tactic is a – or a te- an individual technique would be like uh, a block and a punch to the throat, right? And then the tactic is if you're faced with something where you have no alternative, maybe you, you use that combination. But you don't walk around looking to punch people in the throat, where I think with like – Permaculture, the converse is people learn about swales, all the wonderful things they can do. And I'm a fan of swales, I'll admit it. But you don't walk around trying to impose a swale on a landscape. When the pattern makes sense, then maybe the swale is a tactic or a technique that you implement. And that gives you kind of this, this, this free form permaculture, which I guess is what, what we're really kind of talking about to some degree. Um, well, again, it all comes down to where you are in your own mind. And mm-hmm. if, if you're way uh, – remember everything that's going on on the outside is a reflection of what's going on on the inside. And with permaculture, people who practice permaculture, there's going to be a wide range of uh, ways of seeing the world. So some people, uh, especially if you're just sort of beginning or you become – there's so many ways of practicing permaculture, and and um, some people, you, I can see the development that they're moving to the outer reaches of permaculture and coming to a much more intuitive understanding. And I have no doubt that they will come out uh, uh, seeing the world in a in a way that's even broader than the principles of permaculture. Um, Permaculture is really practical uh, in, in a lot of ways. Think of all the millions of trees, for example, that have been planted because of permaculture. Mm. You know, or the swales when they're in the right place. Oh, and all the water management and the ponds and the the the, the uh, appropriate technology that's coming back and all the skills and everything. All of that is wonderful. And another great thing about permaculture is it's so accessible for people who who um, gee, they just want to do something valuable in their life, but they don't, and they they want to contribute somehow and Permaculture offers a great uh, entryway into seeing the world in a different way in which things are interconnected and people are working together instead of uh, um, uh, struggling against each other. So all of that is great, and it's also a way that you can improve, not improve, but um, sharpen your 
um, your observation of what's what's actually going on. So I don't know. You know, there's this fellow here that's a, a good friend of mine in the southern Oregon, Don Tipping. He's got uh, Seven Seeds Farm, Siskiyou Seeds, and he's got what he calls a permaculture biodynamic farm um, up in the mountains. It's a gorgeous place, and he's got a pond and a whole swale system, and he's got mixed species, and he's got an area that's where, that he's more or less supplying natural farming. And I can just see the the that his development in the 10 years that I've known him, the farm is heading straight towards natural farming. Mm. It is. I can just see the trajectory. Um, so, anyway. Well, I, I think that's yeah. actually very fitting, especially from an Eastern philosophy standpoint. So, you know, we when, when, a, when a student starts learning martial arts, they learn forms, and eventually those forms lead to a true understanding of the art. So... You got to start somewhere. There has to be some fundamental. Most people can't just be told, "Oh, here, do nothing," and understand what the hell that means, right? Because it doesn't. Uh, yeah. mean, if I just say do nothing, then you lay there like a blob. So it doesn't mean what you think it means. So to understand do nothing farming, you have to actually experience it, and there has to be some fundamental starting point for people. So yeah, and Fukuoka-san said you can either, you know, you can you can either work on the inside. Or the outside, and and generally he thought working on the inside was quicker and easier, mm-hmm. although you know that it'll be reflected on, on the outside. Um, but anyway, so in understanding more about all of this stuff, it would be good, I think, for people to read. There's, I think, two books that you translated: um, the One Straw Revolution and and the other one was Sowing the Seeds in the Desert. Did you do the translation on that too? Uh, I didn't do the transa- translation, but I did the editing, and there was a lot of editing needed. Um, certainly, there's also another book called *The Natural Way of Farming*, which I didn't, I wasn't involved with, but it's also a very uh, great book. Uh, that is, if you're thinking of applying natural farming to your to the place where you live. Uh, that has the most practical information. It, it describes all the steps that he took uh, to to uh, uh, develop the natural farming at his place in Japan. People have found it very, very helpful. I'm adding that to the show notes right now. Um, and then you also have a new book out of your own, right, called The One Straw Revolutionary. Can we talk about that for a bit? Sure. Sure. Um, the, the reason I wrote that book, uh, after this been about, gee, I met Fukuoka-san in 1973, I guess, or four. So I've been at this more than 40 years, and I've been giving, and I, I just, I hear the questions, and I get the emails, and and people seem to, it's really difficult for people to understand certain elements of Fukuoka's approach. And so I wrote this book to try to explain natural farming in ways that would be easier for Westerners to understand, um, basically. So, and then the other thing, another thing, and, and the other one of the ways, one of the ways people are, gets stuck is that, that he uses, he explains it from an Asian perspective, from his own cultural perspective, and then he's using terms like no mind and and do nothing, which uh, are just mean nothing essentially to a Westerner. But to an Easterner, um, no mind is is like it's it's such a 
totally full and creative space. Anything is possible. It's very rich. It's even richer than the world with a lot of stuff in it. But the Westerner, you know, uh, thinks uh, do nothing or, gee, that's a kind of a void, an empty space. Um, but then also I do go into, but it's not only the East-West thing. It's what we've been talking about. It's the indigenous understanding versus the modern understanding. So I wanted to explain that, too. And also, for example, the difference between natural farming and uh, traditional Japanese agriculture, organic farming, and permaculture. Well, I go into each of those in detail. Very cool. I also wanted to tell a bunch of stories. So about 60% of the book, you know, I've had these stories and people say, gosh, you got all these stories. Why don't you write a book? Um, so that was kind of in the back of my mind, but I didn't want to do it just for that. Like a memoir? Nah. But still, it, it's a defective way to tell the story. So I talk about what I was doing in Japan on the communes before I met Fukuoka-san and then what it was like living in the orchard and working with the other students there, and then travels with Mr. Fukuoka in the United States, which is kind of fun. I mean... That had to be an interesting experience. Um, I mean, were you at that point ever serving as like a translator? Yeah. Oh, I arranged that. That's got to be fun. I, I arranged the trips, and then I went around with him as his guide, and I translated most of his talks. So I got in on all the private conversations, and I heard all of the questions that people asked and how he answered them. And I saw him see places that I was very familiar with, especially we spent a lot of time in California. And that's where I, I grew up. And I actually studied soil science at one point. I have a degree in soil science from Berkeley. So I did all my field work there, too. So he would come to places that I thought I was very familiar with, and he'd have a completely different take on it. Mm. That was fascinating. Do you and also think that he oversimplified things in bioregions that he wasn't as familiar with? So there's like you you even note in 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 one straw about the reliability of rains where he did his farming and in certain places it almost seems like as I'm reading his book like yeah but you know you know what I mean it it just like like California doesn't have reliability of water that the that, that, that southern Japan does. Yeah. Well, um, the reason – yeah, that's true. You can't grow rice everywhere and you can't grow uh, citrus everywhere. So what if you're in a place that's that's arid or Mediterranean climate or so forth, you have to develop your own system of using his way of thinking. Remember, it's a philosophy mm. – and a way of seeing the world first, and that's almost identical with indigenous people. So, how do you know that natural farming can be practiced anywhere? Well, that's all indig that indigenous people were practicing natural farming all over the world until just eight or ten thousand years ago. But it's but at that time, the 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 world was the uh, landscape was uh, um, uh, hadn't been trashed like it is today. So it definitely is going to be harder, just as you mentioned, to practice natural farming now. You need to spend a couple of years getting um, the systems of nature and the health of nature back, you know, um, 
back in play. You send addicts to rehab, right? I mean, that's like a lot of what we're doing here is we're rehabbing the land before it can it can do its 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 job again. Yeah, and we also need to rehab the, our way of thinking. Sure. Because our just as the land has been has been uh, groomed for modern agriculture and for what we're doing here, the modern people are doing, the, our minds have also are in that same state because we went to public school or we went to regular school because, you know, it's the, you get the message in the media, in literature, from the church or temple or whatever. Um, so we have learned to see the world in the way of our modern culture. And in order, so, geez, so, we have to somehow rehab our thinking to to get rid of a lot of that indoctrination before we can truly, you know, practice this. So that's one. Th- so Fukuoka was lucky. You know, he grew up. He had the same training. He grew up in agricultural society. Had the same training as everybody else. But for some reason, he had this flash of insight where he went from here to there, like right away. For most of us. It takes longer, but we can still use the same approach that he used when he went back to his farm for doing that in our own minds, and that is examining all of our thoughts and say, is this something, why am I thinking this? Is this true or not? Especially the knee-jerk reaction stuff, like um, people are better than other species, that we need uh, chemical agriculture to provide for the world's growing population, that progress is, is a good thing. You know, these basic things and examine each thought as it comes up and say, is this really true or did our, did our modern culture put it there sometime, somehow? And if it's put there by modern culture, toss it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of there's an old story that like the, this husband comes in and his wife's making a roast and she has a cut in half and mm-hmm. he ends off and it's in the pan and he says, why do you do that? And she says, I don't know. Mom did it. So they call mom. Mm-hmm. Mom says, I, I don't know. Grandma did it. So they call grandma up and grandma says, my pan wasn't big enough for the roast. But because it was always observed being done a certain way, it was assumed that it needed to be done that way. And I think we have a lot of things, maybe they're not quite that simple in their, their genesis, but that's exactly what we're doing. It must be so because it's always been this way. And the reality is, as you said, it, you know, eight to 10,000 years ago, Nothing was this way. At, like, like, yes, we made progress in the last 5,000 years I, in technology and other things. I'm not discounting that. But if you go back to about eight to 10,000 years ago at the dawn of modern agriculture, there's absolutely nothing that was always this way. So even the assumption that it always has been is wrong. Like, uh, we're yeah. arrogant in our timelines, I think, as humans. Well, you hear all the time, you know, oh, but it's human nature. Every time you hear it's just human nature, definitely examine that thought because chances are it's not human nature. People lived, you know, for several million years and with cognitive abilities for, say, 150,000 years. And, well, they didn't feel the need to create great civilizations or, you know, they didn't feel that they, you know, all of these things that are assigned to, you know, to to wipe out other species, let's say. No, they didn't. They say, well, it's just human nature to to protect our crops. So we protect our crops by spreading strychnine all over to kill the birds and okay. and wipe and wipe out the wolves. This is not human nature. This is an aberration that comes along with our modern society. I personally think the reason people are so miserable is because they're so non-human today. Like, I don't think it's, 
I, and I understand the realities of what you got to do to survive and what have you, but I don't think it's human nature to climb into a metal box, spend an hour to get to a place you don't want to be, spend eight hours there, climb back into the metal box, go back to a, a, a building that you uh, have mortgaged for 30 years of your existence is going to require you to get back in that metal box tomorrow so that you can live next to somebody and look a certain way so that they can value you as equal because your place looks as good as theirs or better. Like that's, that's totally non-human, but I've just described the existence of most of the people we would call at least moderately successful in, in, in not just America, but the developed world today. So success is, is a non-human, the word I'm looking at, I don't know what the word is, I'm looking at, the non-human existence, right? Like this is not how human beings are supposed to exist. And then you wonder why we screw everything up and why we're miserable. I don't think school in our modern form is a human way to exist, to cram thousands of kids into an area where they're confined with each other in a room and given very specific regimental ways of, to, to perform and then judged on a number. And then if you do that right, maybe you'll get a job that puts you into the metal box, right? Like none of that seems human to me at all, but yet we've decided this is progress and it's, it's insanity. I, I know we're off topic, but really we're not, I guess. Oh no, I don't think we're off topic <laughs> at all. You know, cause one of the people, geez, we've got, we've got air conditioning and electric lights, but, uh, are people actually happier today? Than, than the indigenous people were, uh, gee, probably not. I mean, we're filled with anxiety and fear because we've been, we cut ourselves off from nature and it's just an odd place. We're in a special world of our own intellect. Uh, I mean, people, uh, it's, So people, they, they, so we've cut ourselves off also from the source of healing is what I'm reaching for. That when you're out in nature and, and you just, and the, and the, all of the, um, uh, various factors, it just feels good to be alive and you walk barefoot on the bare ground and you're connected to somehow a, uh, Reality. You can re- Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And it's a healing place. It's a healing place. The world that we've created is not a healing place. It's a place where, where people get sick, actually. It is. It is. And I remember, I don't remember the exact quote, but doctors become necessary when humans don't live as human would be a paraphrase of a quote from, from, from uh, Mr. Fukuoka. Um, Larry, you want to tell folks how they can learn more about you, the work you're doing, where they can find more information about you? Sure. Um, the best place is to visit a website that I maintain for all things uh, Fukuoka, and that is onestrawrevolution.net. And that has uh, a lot of photos of the orchard. It's got um, uh, YouTubes and interviews and a... Uh, articles and reviews and stuff. I think you'll enjoy it if people have really liked visiting that site. And also, I hope that you'll consider reading my book. It was a lot of fun to write, and I did it with the idea to share my experiences about uh, living, being with Fukuoka for knowing him personally, and I try to give people an idea of who he was as a person. It's hard to get that just from reading his book. So this is a book about him. So consider getting my book, please. Uh, 
One Straw Revolutionary. And I've got links to that in the show notes. I've got Great. links to uh, your website. I've got One Straw Revolution, Sowing Season, a Desert Natural Way of Farming, One Straw Revolutionary, which is your new book. I've got a link to uh, for people to connect with you on Facebook, and I'll uh, I'll grab a link for your YouTube channel after we hang up because I just know if I try to do it now, all of a sudden it will start playing in the background. No, I don't. Ha- I don't have a YouTube channel. Oh, okay. No, I just YouTube have video on the site. Okay, yeah, I'll I've just listed the YouTube video site. page. Okay, cool. Um, I, I really appreciate you being with us today, Larry, and uh, taking time to uh, to tell us about all of the things that you're doing and working on. And I appreciate the work that you're doing uh, to further the legacy of a, of a person I think is one of the greatest teachers in, in in certainly modern times, if not all times. I know that it's that reading One Straw transformed the way that I viewed what I was trying to do. And I think that there's probably thousands, if not you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have read the book that we owe you a debt for making that possible because I'm not real good at reading Japanese, uh, just not. In fact, I think I know like two words, and they're from a song in the 80s. That's about it. Um, so thank you so much for the work you did and the work you continue to do. And if there's anything you want to come back onto our show and talk about in the future, know that you're always welcome. Oh, thanks so much, uh, Jack. I, you know, I, I've heard that a lot. Um, thank you for doing this. It was, it's all about, it's, I was going to say it's a bit, it's really from my teacher, but he would say, oh, no, no, it's not about me. It's what I saw that day. Um, and that's what the, the whole thing is about. Um, people have helped all along the way and, uh, somehow, but still, somehow, when I hear things like you just said, uh, it just never gets old. So, <laughs> well, so thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank it, you. It's definitely it. sincere. Um, and with that, I'm going to close up today. Um, folks, I usually end the show with a, a song that I just pick randomly from my uh, own personal music library. Today I'm ending with a song by Jimmy Buffett, which may not seem to fit in with all the things we talked about today. But the song's called Defying Gravity, and the first line of it is, We live on a big round ball. I never do dream I may fall. And I think being connected to the fact that we're on this sphere and we're all in it together is very much in keeping with what Larry and I spoke about today. So with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Larry Korn helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I live on a big round ball I I may fall And even one day if I do Well I'll jump up and smile back at you I don't even know They tell me we're 
Yes, when I do fall, I will be glad to go.